All right, Titus, the book of Titus. It's just after First and Second Timothy and before Hebrews. We have been looking at this, what I call the snapshot of ecclesiology. That means it's a Paul's snapshot. It's a real short letter to a guy named Titus. And it's a letter that says, hey, Titus, go to the island of Crete and establish churches on the island of Crete. There's a lot of cities there, and I need you to go and set things in order, is what we saw him say last week. The first four verses were one long run-on sentence where the Apostle Paul just basically tells you about himself, tells you who he is, what his motivation is, what his purpose in life is. It was a snapshot, if you will, of Paul's life. The rest of this letter is, a, is a, sort of the cliff notes on how to build a church. Cliff notes on how to build the church. And so that's applicable for us today as an, as an infant church in this community. How are we going to build this thing? The first thing that he said last week, remember we were in verse 5. Paul said to, Tim, uh, to Titus, set up things in every city, literally set things straight in every city by appointing what he called elders. You remember I said that the word he used in the Greek for setting things straight is a medical term. It's a term that a doctor, uh, it's a picture of a doctor taking a bone, a broken bone or a um, a hip maybe that's out of joint and setting it back in place. He says, Titus, Go to Crete, where I've spent some time, and we've got some churches going. We've got some believers there now, but I need you to set things in order. Get things going straight. Set the bones that are broken so they can mend and heal correctly. And he says, what you do is, number one, you appoint elders in every city. And then he goes on in the next paragraph to tell us what some of these qualifications are for these men who would lead the church would be. And that's where we are today. We're talking about some of these qualifications. We got briefly through the very first statement of qualification for who would become an elder in these churches. And you remember what I said? Uh, You remember what Paul says to Titus? Find men in every city who are above reproach. Above reproach. Now, you're going to find out that that statement is going to be an umbrella statement for every other qualification that comes in the next paragraph. That these men who you find to set up and oversee, to stand above the body of the church, to stand above above the flock of God's people and direct that flock, these men are to be above reproach. You remember what I said about that? That that means from the outside, from a public viewpoint, these men that we set up can't be men that are called into question. They can't be men who are uh, literally, the word is, grabbed hold of. It's a picture of uh, a sheriff finding a guy who's breaking the law, arresting him, grabbing hold of him, and laying a charge upon him, accusing him of a crime, and saying, you're going to jail. Paul says, we can't have men in the church who would be leaders, who would be the examples and the models to the flock who would be the men that we put up in front of the world and say, this is who we're following. We can't have those men being laid hold of with accusation. We can't let accusations and crimes come against their name because it lowers the standard. Amen? They can't be the examples. They can't be the high models for the rest of us, and they can't be the high models when the world looks in here and says, who are you guys following? Well, we're following Christ. Who here are you following? Who's the coach on the field? And we point that man out and they say, well, yeah, you're following who? That guy? I know that guy. I work with that guy. 
And so the question we might ask is, when we come to this qualification of, are these men above reproach? And you remember last week I stood four men here in front of you because we're at this point as a church. We're at this point as a, as a new church where God has raised up, hopefully, men who would stand above us and help guide our ship and be the model and example to us. And I stood these four men in front of you and I said to our church membership, this is your opportunity to reply back to me and say, Daryl, this guy is above reproach. I would follow this guy. There is no charge that is brought against this guy who is, that is valid. There is no charge that I would ever entertain about this man's life. This guy is above reproach. You also have the opportunity to save these four men. You know what? I have this thing against him. And that's your opportunity. And that's our, that's our responsibility, that we... we Set men above the church who are above reproach. That Satan could not use their life, lay hold of their deeds, and say, you know what, this guy is going to make a mockery of your church, and he's going to be a hypocrite leading a group of what we're going to assume are more hypocrites. Okay? Well, that is the overarching qualification that Paul starts out with here, and he's going to get more specific. And the first place he's going to go is... Guess where? He's going to go into the homes of these men. Look at the next verse here. Verse 5. I'll repeat it for you. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach. But let me be specific. What does this idea of above reproach mean? And he goes directly to the home. He is the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, that sounds fairly obvious, but there are some questions that we've got to ask in unpacking. All right, exactly what does this mean to be the husband of one wife? Let me start out by telling you four things that this does not mean. Four things this does not mean. Number one, it does not, it's, not a, uh, it's not Paul's way of saying that a man can't have more than one wife. And when I say that, I say that because that's obvious. In this day and time, in Paul's day and time, it was obvious that a Christian wasn't to have three wives. All right? There was already an edict against that, and it was obvious. Paul doesn't have to say that. So he isn't necessarily saying here, listen, be the husband of one wife means you just can't have two or three wives. And so we can look at our life, man, and check it off and say, yeah, I've only got one wife. I'm good to go. I qualify as an elder, right? That's easy. But he says more than that. Here's another thing he doesn't say. He doesn't say that this idea of being a husband of one wife includes a widower who decides to remarry. 1 Corinthians 7 gives specific indication that a man whose spouse dies is free from that covenant, is free from that marriage, and is free to get involved with another legal covenant relationship. And so a man who is married, his wife passes and he gets married again, one could argue that he is then the husband of more than one wife. But that's not what Paul's saying here. 1 Corinthians 7 clearly indicates that that would be a permissible activity. It doesn't mean as well that he must automatically or necessarily be married at all. Okay? So as a qualification for an elder, when we look for elders, we don't say, well, he's got to be married. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, actually, uh, most commentators believe that if that was Paul's idea here, if that was his thought here, he would have just said that. He needs to be a married man. Further, uh, the author himself, by all indications, was never married 
at all. The Apostle Paul. And he was an elder. So logically, that doesn't, that doesn't follow here. One last thing that this does not mean. It doesn't necessarily mean, necessarily mean that a man who has been divorced has to be excluded from being an elder. Now, let me explain that because this is even maybe a little more gray of a gray area. Biblically, there are reasons why a man and a woman can legally and in God's eyes correctly be divorced. Now, I'm not going to go into this as sort of a different message for a different day, but there are biblical uh, mandates, biblical permissions given by Jesus himself that a man can leave his spouse. I'll just give them to you briefly. In my understanding, adultery, abuse, and abandonment are the three biblical reasons that a man and a woman can legally and in God's eyes Correctly, although he despises and is saddened by all divorce, legally, in God's eyes, you can be separated from your spouse for cases of adultery, abandonment, your spouse up and leaves you, and abuse. All right? And maybe another day I'll teach on those passages that, uh, that inform that idea. But what doesn't he mean here when he says a husband of one wife? He doesn't mean uh, to infer that polygamy is... His point here, that's obvious. He doesn't infer that a widower who remarries uh, can't be an elder. He doesn't infer that you must be married at all. And he doesn't say here that anyone who is divorced for any reason can never be an elder. All right? Um, Here's what he does mean. The language here indicates that what Paul means when he says the husband of one wife, emphasis is on one. Maybe a different translation would be to help us understand that he is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, again, keep all these qualifications that we're going to go into here following under the umbrella of this man must be above reproach. So what is the qualification for this elder? The qualification is that he is in heart, mind, and hand from his mind to his heart to reality, physical life. He has to be the husband of one wife, meaning he's not a philanderer. He's not known in the community for being a guy who's got a bunch of, bunch of women. He's not known in the community for being a guy who goes outside of his marriage. He is above reproach in his relationship with his spouse. He is a one-woman man in relationship to her. So that he remains above reproach. Imagine the guy who we set up to be an elder, who we set up to be a leader of our church, who in the community he's known as um, a playboy. He's known to have lots of girlfriends. And here all of us thinking that this guy needs to be followed here, that he's a spiritual leader for the body, that he is standing over the church, directing this ship for kingdom purposes. And everyone on the outside says, that guy, man, above reproach in his relationship to his spouse. He's a one-woman man. Heart, mind, and hand. Let me go to the next one here. Stays in the home and he goes to the children. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe. 
having children who believe. There's a variation between this list of qualifications at this point and a list of qualifications that come in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you know your Bible, this isn't the only place that Paul gives a list of qualifications for those who would be leaders in the church. He also gives a list of qualifications in 1 Timothy. And there are a lot of those qualifications that overlap and they match and they're parallel and they're perfect. They, they fit exactly. I mean, he uses the same words, the same phrases, and they're exact. In this place, there's a little difference. Let me read to you what he says in 1 Timothy 3 and see if you can pick up on it. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 says, An elder must be one in relation to his home, one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Of God. Did you catch the variation? Here in Titus he says that this man who would be above reproach, the husband of one wife, a one woman man, his children need to be believing children. In Timothy he says you need to have your children under control. I mean you can't have children that are running amok that are wild and crazy out in this world, wild and crazy here at the church, wild and crazy at school. And be a leader in the, in the church because there's, there's a disconnect there. That if you can't lead your children at home to be good citizens, submissive, how are you going to lead the children of God, his church, his house? That's what he says in Timothy. In Titus, he ups the ante here. And it's, and it's hard, guys. This is, this is hard. And I, I was stuck on this phrase for a long time. And I went to as many as many wise commentaries as I could. Let me, let me tell you what this means, uh, because it means exactly what it says. And unfortunately, this is a hard word, and it disqualifies a good, listen to me now, a good many men. And it also disqualifies many good men. Okay? His children must be believing Children. Now, the word for children there that Paul uses, it's the word that means a child of really any age. Actually, in verse 4, when he uses it to address Titus, my true child in the faith, in a common faith, it's the same word. And we know Titus wasn't an infant. Titus wasn't a, a toddler. Titus wasn't uh, even a teenager. Titus was a man. But it's the same word here. Also, let me point this out. The context... The context of this phrase implies that children here refers to grown or nearly grown children. Grown or nearly grown children. So we're not talking about here uh, a toddler or an infant or even a preschooler or maybe even a, um, an elementary age child. And let me tell you why that is. Let me tell you why the context helps us to understand that. Keep going there at the rest of this verse. At the end of verse 6. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, uh, you might at first glance think that those two are additional qualifications for the elder, that the elder not be accused of dissipation or rebellion. But those are actually connected to the child. So Paul says to Titus, here's the kind of man we need to find. We need to find a one-woman man, and we also need to find a man who has children who are believing. Believing children who are the children themselves 
not accused of. And that word accused is the Greek word that we get the word category from. That these children are not put in. Now, see if this isn't uh, if this isn't right on for how we look at uh, church leaders, children, pastors, children, that we don't put these children in the category of being riotous is what dissipation means, that they're riotous, unruly living, wild living. The picture technically is it's a picture of really the prodigal son who takes the wealth from his father and goes out and spends it on whatever he wants to spend it on himself, spends it on material gain, and he just lives a riotous life. Same word used with the prodigal son. That can't be the child of an elder. The next word it says about this child is that he can't be unruly in the sense that he can't be a rebel. He can't be a rebel. In the sense of he can't be a guy who isn't able to submit to authority. A child who bucks his parents, a child who bucks the law, a child who bucks the teachers, a child who bucks his boss. It can't be that kind of child. An elder qualified to lead the church cannot have a child in that category. Now, how does that help us to understand that he's an older child? Well, a child who is a younger child could certainly be rebellious. You can find Grady and, uh, and figure that out pretty quick. He's, he's shady, I'm telling you. Um, three-year-old, his favorite things are pirates and monster trucks. And I'm telling you, uh, neither of those institutions are legitimate, I'm telling you. To be a pirate or a monster truck driver, something about it. So certainly a young child could be rebellious. But to say that a young child would be um, in the category of riotous living uh, would be unfair. And so the idea here in Paul's mind is, and this is, uh, this is a tough area, guys. This isn't an area that we can be legalistic on. It isn't an area that we can say, you know what, when he turns... Boom. Four years of old. If he's not saved, you can't be an elder. When he turns six years old, boom. If he's not saved, you can't be an elder. There is always freedom in the body of Christ. There is always grace in the body of Christ. But under the umbrella of this guy has to be above reproach, a one-woman man, he adds to that. He has to be a man who has children who are believing. The inference is that if your children grow up in your household and they are not of the faith, the hard truth is, the high standard is, you, as good of a man as you may be, do not qualify to lead God's children. Now this is... um, this is a hard truth for me, right? I mean, I have a three-year-old boy, a nine-month-old boy, and um, it could get ugly, right? Uh, Kimberly and I have prayed about this since the day we, uh, we got married, probably. Can I tell you that I know very few ministers, I know very few who lead the church, uh, in my experience, this is to say, that at least one of their children has not gone astray, has not been the prodigal, has not been unruly and rebellious. 
And, uh, you know, it's kind of a joke. As I said earlier, it's kind of the joke that we categorize ministers' children in this area. I mean, it's, you know, who are the worst kids? Pastor's kid. Wayne. (laughs) Wayne was a pastor's kid. So I'm scared, guys. I mean, I've not seen many leaders pull this thing off with their kids. I mean, there are some pressures on the children of the pastor, the children of ministers, children of our elders, that um, the common member's child, I'm sorry, does not get. The expectations for a member's, or for a pastor's child or an elder's child, the expectations are high. All eyes are not only on the leader, but all eyes are on his family. And that's not an excuse, guys. That's just the truth of the of the thing. That's just how it is. And uh, I've grown up under pastors who've had this challenge and have had to ask that question, what do I do? Can I tell you what I've had to resolve in my heart? According to Scripture, according to Paul's words here, if in three years or four years, um, whenever it is that we deem that Grady or Corbin um, is at an age where they can be responsible for their own faith, if we have not raised them in a home that has brought them to a place of faith, then I won't stand up here. I can't. Now let me tell you, again, under the umbrella of being above reproach, for me to stand here with rebellious children, say my children grow up and they, you know, they're, they're just wild, man. They're doing whatever they want. They're as far from the church as they can get. Maybe they're not even real far, but they're far enough that the world looks at them and says, man, these kids, they're out there. If that is the perspective of the world and if that is the perspective of the body of Christ, that when they look at the leader's children, they say, they're gone. They're out there. And they fall into that category. They fall into that category of unbelieving, unruly, and rebellious. If that is ever the category that my children fall under, then I've got to step down. Because under the umbrella of being above reproach, I understand that this is a bigger deal than just me. We as leaders of the church, our elders have to understand it's a bigger deal. Let me, let me give you a couple other passages here that explain this. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that means among the world, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, that thing that they would like to grab hold of you and accuse you of, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God. What does that mean? That when they look into the home of the leader of the flock, There's no disconnect that as examples and models, both the community and the flock in God's home should say, you know, there's really no disconnect. There's a level of success that this leader has had with his own children. 
that leads me to believe that he can be trusted in leading the children of God. Now, let's be honest. If that doesn't, if that doesn't connect, we all, we all would say, yeah, on some level, I just don't know how successful this man's going to be in leading God's house. And that's just the hard truth. Let me give you another passage. To the Corinthians, Paul said this, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or Gentiles or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Now listen, this is not this idea of putting men uh, in leadership of the church, this idea of our elder candidates, that these four men that I've put in front of you, this is not a popularity contest. This is not about them. This is about, as Paul just said to the Corinthians, it's not for our own profit. It's not for our own gain. This is about men and women being saved. And if in some way, somehow, my life gets in the way of that, then I have become a hindrance and a roadblock and if that is the case of the men who we set up to be the examples and the models to the rest of us, how far short are the rest of us going to fall? Yeah, you see, you see the importance here? You say, man, that's a, that's a hard truth. That's a high standard. But well, it should be. But well, it should be. Let me, let me finish on this. Let me be clear about something. Uh, there are none, there are none who are perfect. Amen? Not even the four men that I stood here in, in front of you last week. Uh, I mean on no way to infer that these men are perfect. Our goal, however, is to remove every stumbling block. To remove everything that we can that would hinder men and women from being saved. Hey, we already have, we already have, a reputation, and not us as Cornerstone, but us as a church as a whole. The world already looks at us with a microscope and has put upon us, maybe even if it's just because of a few who have fallen, but they've already put upon us the label of hypocrite. Our character has caused our legitimacy to fall. Our character has hampered the expansion of the kingdom. I mean, that's already happened, right? Every time a man who's set up in leadership falls, it does damage. It does damage to this war we are fighting to push back the darkness with the light. That's why we put men in every city who are above reproach. When you look into their home, as a general rule, we don't want to put a guy in leadership. When the world or when the congregation looks into their home, they say, yeah, there's just some disconnects here. Instead, we want the world and we want those of you who sit here to say, yeah, I can see it. I can see that guy. I would follow that guy. I know he's not perfect. I know he fights his own battles. I know he's got... Sin that he struggles with. But by all indications, he's winning more of those battles than he's losing. 
by all indications, there's nothing in this man's life that would be a distraction from grace. There's nothing in this man's life that would keep me from saying, you know what, I can follow that guy. I can follow that guy. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we certainly are not perfect. We're not. If we were perfect... um, we would not need Christ as we do. But we do. I mean, that's the basis for why we're here, Lord, is because we need the cross. We need your Son on the cross because we are not perfect. But Lord, we're praying that you would raise up men in this congregation and you would keep these men that they might be of reputation enough in this community and they might be of reputation enough among this body that we could submit to their leadership, that we could hold them up as models before new believers and say, this man hasn't arrived, certainly, but God's got all of him. Father, I pray that you've got all of us. pray that you have all of each of us. If if today you've seen something here, you've felt something here, that on some level in your heart or in your mind leads you to believe that the God who we've been talking about is maybe today in a new way real. I pray that you would ask him that you would ask him to overlook because of the blood of Christ, overlook your debt of sin. Listen, if um, if you've come here today and you've never said, God, I see the debt of my sin And I know that there is nothing I can do to pay for it. But now I see Jesus, maybe in a way I've never seen him before, and I understand that he pays that debt. And he unloads it off my shoulders so that when you have to stand before God, you don't have this debt load on your shoulders. You're free and clear because of Jesus. Hey, if that's you today, during this song, you don't have to come up here and tell me. You're welcome to. But why don't you just bow your head, quiet your heart, and talk to God before you leave this place. If you've already made that decision, but you've never made that decision public, you've never stepped out in front of a group of believers and said, you know what, I'm on God's side because of his grace and mercy. If you've never done that and you need to do that, you feel prompted to do that, come up and tell me and I'll help you share that with the body. I told you guys last week that as we are in this passage dealing with uh, God's leaders, that of course not all of us fall into that category. But we all need to remember these guys are models and examples for the rest of us. 
And so whatever the qualifications are, whatever the standard is for them, that standard is there so that we begin to measure up to it. Not to earn our way to God, not to earn our way to heaven, right? But as a response to what God has already done by grace for us. And as a response to how much God has loved us, we say, God, we want to be men and women who are above reproach. Morally, morally above reproach. Yeah. So if that's you, believers, you just bow your head and your heart and you, you ask God to continue to help you in that way. Let's stand. We're going to sing.